Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church who are committed to studying the words of Jesus, walking in the ways of Jesus, and partnering in the mission of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on that journey today. I'm so excited about this passage in Mark chapter 10, one of my favorite in all the Bible. I love this interaction that Jesus has with this man. So I'm excited for you to hear about it as Mike and Marlene, who serve so faithfully with our setup team as they read this to you. All right, so yeah, Mark 10, 46. So now they came to Jericho as he went out of Jericho with his disciples and a great multitude. Blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the road begging. And when he had heard, that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Then many warned him to be quiet. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. So Jesus stood still and commanded him to be called. Then they called the blind man, saying to him, Be of good cheer, rise, he is calling you. And throwing aside his garment, he rose and came to Jesus. So Jesus answered and said to him, What do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, Rabboni, that I may receive my sight. Then Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus on the road. What's a person worth? It's the question we ask ourselves sometimes, I think, is what am I worth? Like, do I matter? Am I valuable? What's my worth? If you ask Professor Google that question, what am I worth? One of the websites that came up is called savingadvice.com. And it says, and I'll quote, when we total the monetary value of the elements in our bodies and the value of the average person's skin, we arrive at a net worth of $4.50. That's what we're worth. Take heart, though, another website, soundmedicine.edu, said, answering the question, how much is a human body worth? I'll quote quote from it to you. They said, when broken down into fluids, tissues, and germ fighting, our bodies are worth more than $45 million. This price tag on the human body is based on a survey published by Wired Magazine. It found that vital organs are no longer the most valuable body parts. Rather, bone marrow heads the list, priced at $23 million, based on 1,000 grams at $23,000 thousand dollars per gram. DNA can fetch an additional 9.7 million, while extracting antibodies can bring 7.3 million. A lung is worth about 116,000, a kidney over 91,000, and a heart valued at 57,000. Although this breakdown is illegal, it's unethical, and also impossible, because you can't function without a heart and all of these other things, obviously. You shouldn't feel, this is how the article concluded, you should not feel like a million dollars anymore. You instead can feel like 45 million instead. My question, and I'm assuming yours though, when we think of the idea of worth and value, is not necessarily what is my value monetarily? Like what's my net worth? No, what what am I worth? How much do I matter? Is my life significant to any other person? That's what we're asking. If I'm not here anymore, does anyone care? That's what we wonder. It's also not just about other people, but we think, what's my worth, what's my value, even to God himself? 
And it's hard to answer these questions because there's really two different kinds of value, aren't there? There's intrinsic value and then there's assigned value that are a part of our society, our culture, our world. It's always been this way. There's intrinsic value and assigned value. I'll I'll illustrate the difference between these two. I have a a Babe Ruth baseball card at home that's made of 14-karat gold. It's such a precious thing that I couldn't find it. I must have hidden it very well, or I would have brought it this morning. But this Babe Ruth baseball card, because of its being made in gold, it has intrinsic value, regardless of what you think of baseball or Babe Ruth or baseball cards at all. You'd want it because of the substance it's made of. Gold has intrinsic value. It has additional assigned value, though, to the guy who's a collector who's decided that he cannot live and go another day without owning that Babe Ruth card that is made of gold. He would assign a greater value than just the value that you would assign to it of saying, well, yeah, if we melt it down, it has already intrinsic value because of the very substance. No, it also has assigned value to that collector that I need to find on eBay who's going to take it off my hands once I can find it again. The difference, though, is a dollar bill. A Babe Ruth baseball card made of 14-karat gold has intrinsic value because of its substance. A dollar bill just is ink and paper. It has zero intrinsic value. Paper and ink are worthless. But it has a stamp on the bill that marks that it's it's promised that some sort of actual substance is being represented by it, that it has value that's been assigned to it by the U.S. government. It's just paper and ink, no intrinsic value, but it has assigned value. Here's what's so difficult. Within society, we can look and say, am I valuable? Am I worth anything? But in the eyes of people, human life has less and less intrinsic value, it seems, as history goes on. We think of wars and we think of exploitation of people. Even in your own mind, abortion might come to the forefront of your mind. We do not value life intrinsically. What we live under then is a pressure to to find a way to get people to assign value to us, to earn something in their minds. So they would look at us and say, well, yeah, I think you're important oftentimes because they can get something from you, because they can benefit from a relationship with you. We understand this kind of pressure because this is the pressure that all of us live under to, to try to succeed so that someone else would look at us and say, you've made it. You're worth it. You're important, you're valuable. It's not just for us as adults. I sat in a meeting this last week with the local principals from all the PUSD high schools, and they brought up a survey of 500 students on the local campuses where they asked students, what's the greatest pressure that you face? And the greatest pressure that surfaced for local high school students was not pressure about drugs, sex, and rock and roll, or alcohol, or any of those things. It was academic pressure. Because they feel that there's a standard that they have to live up to in a community like ours that's driven and successful. And if they don't reach that expectation, then they don't find anything that's valuable inside themselves. They, like us, are starting at such a young age to try to earn someone, someone's willingness to assign value to them. But think about the contrast between society and what we find in the God of the Bible. Your Bible says that you've been made in his image. And as an image bearer, you have then intrinsic value to God. The very substance of what you're made of, made in the image of God, means that you're highly valuable, the most valuable thing to him in all of creation. And then when he could not have valued you anymore, we thought, he assigned and ascribed and demonstrated even greater value to you by going to a cross and suffering and dying for you. 
The beautiful thing about the God of the Bible is that you and I have a confidence that we have both intrinsic and assigned value to us, that we are so valuable to him. It's what sets him and his love aside from all others. Because even if you stripped away all of your natural abilities or all of your accolades or or all of your account balances, your title, your prestige, if all of it was gone and what you were left with is truly who you actually are, even then God loves you. Remember the gospel, it tells me that I'm far worse than I had thought. It's offensive, but it simultaneously, simultaneously tells me that I'm far more loved than I'd ever hoped or dreamed. Remember that the desire of every person is to be fully known and yet somehow still simultaneously fully loved. Our greatest fear is that we would be fully known, and because of that, someone would choose not to love us, not to assign value to us. But love without knowledge is cheap and shallow. To be loved by someone but not known by them is worthless. But to be fully known and fully loved is man's greatest desire, and it's what we find in Jesus. Think about it. Jesus saw value in people that were otherwise deemed as without value. He saw worth in in people's lives who were otherwise deemed as worthless. Jesus loved others that no one else saw as being worthy of love or care or affection or attention. And the story we just read is a beautiful example of that. Think back to our story, Mark chapter 10, where Jesus, it says, he enters Jericho and and there are beggars lining the streets as they often would. It's easy to picture the scene there at the gates. And Jesus is walking and teaching as he would often do. And there's a crowd around him moving quickly to keep up, but very quietly so that they can hang on his every word. But then this man, a blind man named Bartimaeus, He hears that it's Jesus of Nazareth coming through the city, and he begins to cry out, have mercy on me, son of David. It's a messianic title. It's about the the prophetic one, the the, the prophesied savior of the world who had come. He, He believed that Jesus was that coming deliverer, the descendant of the great King David, who would reign forever. Jesus, son of David, have mercy. And it says that they looked at him and began to warn him They began to threaten him. And his response is he cries out all the more. And then it says, it's so beautiful, verse 49. So Jesus stood still and then commanded that he be brought to him. And in that moment, that man, it says in verse 50, he threw aside his garments. And in that moment, he's healed and made well. He's made whole again. And I love how the story finishes where it says that that man then followed Jesus. The first thing that man saw was Jesus himself. Seeing Jesus, the one who had touched him and healed him, the one who had cared for him, who had loved him, was something that left him so captivated that he followed Jesus on Jesus' march into the city where you might remember we're at the end of the story. Jesus will enter that city for the final time because he will not leave. He'll end up on a cross. And this man will be there. It says that he followed him on the way, many translations say. It's the first century church's way of saying that he was a follower of Jesus, a disciple, a Christian. They were called the people of the way. An incredible miracle took place this day in the city of Jericho, it tells us. It's interesting because you might have already picked up on this. This is not the first time that Yeshua does a miracle in this city of Jericho. Yeshua, remember the Old Testament, remember Jesus receives his name, it means Savior, Yeshua, Jesus. It's actually the name 
of the guy who followed Moses to lead the people into the promised land, Joshua. Remember, Yeshua, the Savior. Joshua would lead his people into the promised land. Jesus would be named in honor of that great leader. And Jesus would truly come to save his people from their sins and to lead us into the promised land. That's what Jesus came to do. And so we've already seen a story that, that all of a sudden is triggered in our minds of another Joshua, a Yeshua, who came before Jesus of Nazareth and entered the city and saw a massive miracle take place. You remember the story I'm I'm assuming for so many of you. In Luke's gospel, because this story is told in three of the gospels, in Luke's gospel, it tells us that this moment takes place as Jesus is coming near Jericho, whereas in Matthew and in Mark, it says as he's exiting the city. And there are a lot of people who are critics of the Bible who cried party foul for a long time saying, see, your Bible has an error. It's either that he was coming or he was going from the city. And this is where they say, so I don't believe the book because there's some sort of a discrepancy here. But modern archaeologists have gone and dug up the ancient city of Jericho, and what they've actually found is the twin cities of Jericho. And so as Jesus left one of those cities to enter another side of the city of Jericho, that's where this miracle takes place. In fact, archaeologists tell us that the city that existed in Joshua's day that came falling down in that miraculous moment was left in such ruin that just adjacent to it, they built the second, the twin city of the lost city of Jericho. Archaeologists have gone there, and what they've discovered is that there are walls that are towering over 30 feet high that once would have been uh, over the heads of Joshua and his men. There were two walls 15 feet apart that were attached by houses on the top of them, just like Joshua's story tells us. The outside wall was six feet thick. The inside wall, it was 12 feet thick. But you might remember the story from Joshua. He and Israel's army do what God had told them to do. And they went and marched around the city walls of Jericho, carrying the Ark of the Covenant, a reminder of the presence of God that was with them and for them. And when they did that in obedience, the walls of the city came crumbling down before them. It's an incredible miracle. An even more impressive miracle takes place in Joshua's life right after this, though. And the more impressive miracle is found in Joshua 10, where sometime around 1400 BC, this crazy, crazy moment takes place, where Joshua and his men would be greeted with word that had been run to them by a herald, where where they arrive and say, one of our near neighbors, someone you made a covenant, a treaty with, someone that you promised protection to, is being attacked by, I think it's a handful of neighboring kings and, and, and communities that are all working together to come against them, and you promised that you'd come to our aid. So Joshua and his men, they arose and they marched all through the night in order to go to the rescue of these people they had made this promise to. And they begin to fight, and against all odds in the story in Joshua 10, Joshua and his men are actually winning the battle. And a crazy detail comes out in verse 11 where it says, then as they're fighting, these discriminating hailstones, you might remember the story, come flying out of the sky and hitting only the enemies of the nation of Israel, only the enemies of the nation of our God. And the, the story continues where the sun begins to go down and, and Joshua realizes if the enemy can retreat and go and rest, if the enemy can regroup, then, then they're going to come back tomorrow and slaughter us. We are up all night marching, all day fighting, we're wiped. And if they can regroup, we're done for. And so he all of a sudden realizes we need to keep fighting. So what do we do? And he stands up, verse 12, Joshua chapter 10, and he begins to pray that the sun would stand still which is a crazy, crazy thing to ask for. 
The crazier thing is that the next verse, verse 13, says that it did. The sun stood still. That daylight remained long enough for them to win, for Joshua and his army to be victorious. Daylight remained because the father heard his prayer and the son stood still. His prayer moved the heart and the hand of God into action in that moment. The story, it leaves me amazed, but I'll tell you, that story in Joshua's life, it leaves me scratching my head because I, I can wonder, how is that even possible? Like, surely this is just folklore. I mean, how can the sun stand still if, if the earth is the one that's orbiting around the sun and the earth is the one that, while spinning, makes the sun to seem to disappear? So how is it that the, that the sun stands still? Well, what Joshua is explaining would have looked like the sun stood still, but have pro- would have most probably been that the earth actually slowed down and it was the one standing still rather than turning, causing the sun to disappear, that at some point in time, God intervened and as the earth slowed its rotation, the day was prolonged so that the nation of Israel could be victorious. But our question again is, but isn't that even possible? Can the earth stop or even slow its spinning? Well, I'm really glad you asked. I remember a couple of years ago reading a headline after a massive earthquake had hit. Uh, you, you might remember the, the earthquake that hit in Chile, which I believe measured at almost a nine on the Richter scale. I remember reading headlines that what they were beginning to say is that our days were shortened The length of our typical day was shortened because the Earth's rotation actually sped up. Because of that massive quake, it shifted things and caused the Earth to speed up, causing our days to shorten just a bit every single day. It's not just things that can happen in our own planet, but if you you do your research, you'll find that in the 1970s, and specifically 1972, scientists were saying that in August of 72, there was a massive explosion that took place on the sun that caused the Earth's rotation not to speed up, but to momentarily, just for a period of time that day, to slow down as all of that pressure entered our own atmosphere. The Earth's rotation slowed down until the pressure subsided, and then it re-sped up and matched its normal rotation. So in Joshua's story, something on our own planet or something to do with one of our near neighbors seems to have made the Earth's rotation slow, temporarily prolonging the day. And both science and history end up seeming to point to a unique moment in history, a unique event in history that took place that matches up with this story. And I realize it's a little early in our discussion, but we're going for the nerd rant, so buckle up. In 1877, Asaph Hall, he discovered that Mars has two moons that they travel from west to east, which is opposite from us, ours are from east to west, but they travel from west to east, and they were discovered to be the two darkest objects in our own solar system, that they're, they're super dark, ominous uh, moons that are there that are, vi- are barely visible. Now, here's what's odd. 150 years before those were discovered, Jonathan Swift was an author who wrote a novel that's very well known called Gulliver's Travels. It's an entertaining story that kind of has this dark, interesting narrative and, and storyline that they're, they're trying to give a very interesting, heavy political message that's intertwined within this novel. It, it's kind of like a weird moment when you hear your kids playing and singing Ring Around the Rosie, and you're like, yeah, that's really happy. And they're like, it's not happy at all. Ring Around the Rosie. It's talking about the bubonic plague, that you first notice a rash and a pocket full of posies, the bubonic plague they carried around 
uh, flower petals in their pockets that they'd hold against their face as if it was an effective mask in order to keep and protect them. At least it smelled better than the mask that we're used to wearing. And then ashes, ashes, we all fall down because they're burning bodies so that, you know, the plague doesn't spread anymore. It's a very sweet game for your children to play. It's, it's like when they play London Bridge and it's falling down, falling down, and then, oh, my fair lady who apparently was crushed under the bridge. Like, I don't know if you've ever seen, every time I see these, I just think, this is not, this is not right. Have you ever seen those inflatables that you can rent, you know, for kids' birthday parties? Have you ever seen the Titanic slide? You climb up a ladder on one slide, the boat's tilted like this, and then you slide down the other side, and part of the inflatables is, is what looks like jagged ice sticking up. It's like, oh no, down into the frigid waters. Happy birthday. Like, who makes this stuff? Well, Gulliver's Travels is kind of like that. We're like, oh, this is happy. No, it's really not. Like, this is weird. And the, the book, though, gives the precise dimensions of both of Mars' moons and then gives the detail that they're traveling from west to east and describe them as these dark, ominous objects 150 years before they were even discovered. The amazing thing is that that Jonathan Swift, his writings were steeped in. He'd reach into ancient traditions and even uh, into mythology in order to pull details together as he'd write these novels. And that seems to be the only explanation for how he got those kinds of details. In fact, if you look at ancient traditions, every ancient people group worshipped not just their ancient deities, but often connected those deities to different planets in our solar system. You can look back at Marduk, who's the god of the Babylonians that historians tell us was linked to Mars. And then, and then you find an echo of that god in, in the Canaanites, in Baal, who some historians will tell you was also linked to worship of Mars. And then you get to the Romans and their god Mars. He's kind of the OG hipster. He typically is depicted with a mustache and some low-rise trousers. And, and this guy, he's, he's the god of war and of pain and panic, that he was a terrifying god in their minds. And then the Greeks, they also worshipped Mars. A god who in Greek mythology, listen please, was pulled by a chariot that had two dark horses and at one point in history spun so close to the earth that he sprayed debris onto the earth causing great havoc on the earth, spraying that debris towards the sons of men is what Greek mythology says. This is how, a century and a half before those dark moons were even officially discovered orbiting around Mars, Gulliver's travels could include those sorts of details, and it leaves modern scientists with a really interesting theory that Mars broke off its axis and caused some sort of a cosmic disturbance in our history, swooping down dangerously close to the Earth, and when it did, Mars did a drive-by entering the Earth's atmosphere, and when it did that, slowing the Earth's rotation for a period of a day and throwing what the Bible says were discriminating hailstones, the chariot spinning out of control, throwing debris at the sons of men. Now, here's the craziest thing scientists say. They say for this to happen, and it's believed that it did happen, it would have been 1,800 years in the making. 1,800 years before Joshua would stand there on that battlefield and publicly cry out and say, God, make the sun stand still. 1,800 years before God would have reached forward and flicked Mars off its access point so that it would have slowly made its way towards the Earth's atmosphere so that in that very moment, the answer to Joshua's prayer would arrive there in place and rescue the people of God. That's an amazing, crazy miracle. 
that the God of the universe caused the sun to stand still, that the Father in heaven hears the prayer of his people and the sun stood still, that Joshua's prayer moved the heart and the hand of God into action. But I tell you all of that because I think you're looking at a greater miracle here in Jericho. The greater miracle that took place in Jericho when the other Yeshua, that Jesus, the Savior, Jesus of Nazareth, where a common beggar is crying out, named Bartimaeus, crying out and praying to him, Jesus, have mercy. In Joshua 10, what happened was a military commander appealed to God, and, and this, the fate of a nation was at stake. But not this time. It's just a blind beggar. It's just his needs. It's just his sorrow that the heart of God hears. Son of David, have mercy on me. Verse 49, so Jesus stood still. As impressive as it is that, that Joshua and the armies of Israel would cry out on behalf of a nation, rescue us, and the sun would stand still. An insignificant beggar who could do nothing for God, who could do nothing for Jesus, cries out of his pain and says, just have mercy. And your story tells you that the son stood still. That the father heard his prayer and it moved the heart and the hand of God into action in that moment. That God didn't just snap his fingers to make this happen or flick a planet off its axis. No, what had to happen is that God had to leave the comforts of heaven to lay aside his, his power and glory and to enter human flesh and to come to suffer and on his way to suffering, stop. And look at this insignificant beggar. And reach down and lift him up and touch and heal him. Jesus, the Son, stood still. Think about that. The God of the universe, the creator of all things, with just a spoken word, he brought it all into existence. The one whom in all his glory, it says he can hold the universe in the span of his hand. But he arrives and stops because of the appeal of an insignificant blind beggar, because Jesus cared about Bartimaeus. His prayer, his cry for mercy, moved the heart and the hand of God to action, even though no one else saw value in him. Even though he could do nothing for Jesus, Jesus loved him still. The beauty of this is that I don't believe this is just a story about Jesus and a blind man. I believe this is a story about, about Jesus and me, about God and you. Remember, as I've often told you, Hebrews 1 tells you that Jesus is the express image of the Father, the exact duplicate, that they're cut from the same mold, is it what it means? And so the things that you see Jesus do is what you can begin to expect God to do. The things that you see in Jesus, his, his loving nature, his gracious character, him being drawn to the weary and brokenhearted is what we anticipate our God to continue to do because Hebrews 6 tells us he's immutable, he's unchanging in nature and in character. And if Jesus loved this man enough to stop for him, the creator of all things, to stand still, then I'm led to believe that that is how God sees me as well. It ought to leave me with, with a confidence that the Father will hear my prayer and that the Son stands still for me. That I have his attention as this blind man who came with nothing to offer had his attention. In fact, again, think about the context of the moment. 
Jesus is marching with purpose towards Jerusalem where he's told us he must suffer, where he will become a substitute and savior for all of humanity. He's going to rescue the world. That's where he's headed. And yet on his mission to save humanity, he stops for a humble beggar and individual. And it wasn't an interruption so much as it was a clear illustration of his individual love for each human within humanity. It's a beautiful story of humanity. It's humanity's story where all, all of us are spiritually blinded. We're desperate and without a way to save ourselves, we're desperate for a savior to turn our direction with love and healing in his hands. Hear me say that Jesus did not stop because of what was in this man. Jesus stopped because of what was in himself. Love and grace and compassion. He didn't stop because of what was in the man. He stopped because of what was in his own heart. You see, there's only one hero in this story. And make no mistake, the hero is Jesus. His love and grace, compassion and care, even for those who could do nothing for him. It reminds us that we don't work hard to try to get some distant God to notice us, to try to get his attention. No, Christianity is so different from any, any and every other religion in that we have a God who came near to us while we were estranged from him. He loved us when we were not lovable. In fact, when we were at enmity with him, Scripture says. We do not win Jesus' approval nor his attention. No, we accept his unmerited favor and unconditional love. And if that's true, then my push is not that you would try to match some formula that Bartimaeus has here to win favor or, or to get heaven's attention. No, my push is not for you to try to match a formula. No, my encouragement to you is that you have a God who loves you and who stands still for you. You have an audience with the king. You have heaven's attention and affection. And if that's true, then we ought to go to him in the same way that this blind man did. Now, as if I haven't done it already, allow me just to preach to you about this, because this is so moving and meaningful to me. Think of the way that this man Bartimaeus cried out to Jesus. He cried out with humility. That's the first thing. If you're taking notes, just write it down. He cried out with humility. He said, have mercy on me. He did not approach God with bitterness or anger. He didn't show up saying, it's not fair and you owe me. He cried out with humility saying, have mercy on me that I might receive my sight. Some of your Bibles will translate that different, and they'll write that I might regain my sight, because the Greek language, the word that's used, is a word that means to recover, to recover what was lost. It's giving us a little hint here. The story is, Mark is, that this man has suffered a loss, was not born with the loss of his sight. Something happened, and an illness or an accident, we don't know, but he lost his sight, and he could come to Jesus and say then, give me back what was wrongfully taken from me. How dare you, if I believe that this is who you are, the Messiah, the, the, the Savior of heaven coming here to earth to rescue humanity, how dare you allow this to happen to me? He did not come with an I deserve or you owe me. He came in humility saying, just have mercy on me. Have mercy. He's not yelling in, in anger and bitterness. No, he's saying mercy. In fact, when Matthew's gospel tells the story, it says there's two beggars who are both blind, who are there begging Jesus for a touch. But when Mark and Luke tell the story, they focus on this one guy, Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus. Now, here's what's odd. Bartimaeus literally means son of Timaeus. Bar 
is Hebrew for son of Timaeus. It's when Jesus looks at Simon Peter and says, Simon bar Jonah, Simon bar, the son of Jonah. Bar Timaeus, the the beggar was known as the son of Timaeus. Mark, writing to a Greek audience, doesn't want us to miss the detail here. So he says it twice. Did you catch that? He says, Bar Timaeus, the son of Timaeus. He's slowing us down. Are you tracking, he's saying. There's something about this man's identity that he's trying to point out. Now, here's what's interesting. Jesus heals countless people. We're, we're confident of that during his life and ministry. In fact, the Gospels records so many of those miracles, and all of the people who received a healing touch from Jesus share one thing in common, that they're nameless, that they mattered to Jesus, but their names were not penned for us, with exception of this one miracle. This is the one time where we're given a family name, when we're given an identity In fact, Augustine, who's an early church father from the 4th century, he wrote quite extensively about this moment because he found this so unique and so interesting that of all that's recorded, of all the miracles of Jesus, this one becomes so personal. And his personal conviction, and I would tend to agree with him, is that this family name would have been known in that region, Timaeus. And that Bar Timaeus, the son of Timaeus, would have been an heir to something. That he would have come from a family of prominence. What it's telling you that you find him now in this moment as a beggar is that he's fallen an awful long ways to land there. The one who who had so much connected to his name that, that even heaven itself said, why don't you write down his name so that people know that this was the one who came from that kind of a family and yet found himself in this desperate of a situation. You see, I think it makes it far more personal. Something happened, something tragic that left the man blind and begging. From prominence to poverty, he fell. And yet in that moment, he's not there demanding that he be made well or whole. It's not an insult. He's hurling Jesus' direction. No, there's a humble request that he makes only for mercy here. He cried out with humility, son of David, have mercy on me. May I remind you, God's response to you, it's not built on your merit. It's based on your his mercy. His response to me, it's not built on my merit. If I do good and try hard, he hears me. No, it's based on his mercy. I'm not building rungs and a ladder with good works and and trying harder that reach me closer to heaven's ear. No, it's his mercy that leans down, stoops down close enough that he walked among us so that he would know us and could love us. What that means is that God doesn't respond to my prayers in proportion to my performance. He cried out in humility, have mercy. Do you see the irony of the moment that the blind man in the story is the only one who seems to see Jesus clearly? He cries out, son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, the promised future descendant of the great King David who would reign forever, he sees Jesus for who he is. He cries out with humility. There's a second thing, though. He cries out with tenacity. With tenacity. He's persistent. It means to hold on to something and to not let go. In fact, Luke's gospel gives us the detail that as he hears the commotion, that Bartimaeus asks someone, what's going on? And that their response is, Jesus of Nazareth is here. And immediately he begins to cry out for mercy. And then it tells us that they they step in and tell him to shut up, to be quiet. The the terms that are used are aggressive. It sounds threatening. Can you imagine in a public setting, people threatening a blind man? If you don't, so help me. And his response, 
It says that he cries out all the more. It's a Greek word, K-R-A-Z-O, krazo. He cried out like crazy. It actually is a word that's taken from the animal kingdom that means to shrink like a bird or a raven, to cry out like an animal. That when they threatened him, he said, this is my shot. And again, he yelled, son of David, this is it. This is my moment. Just have mercy again and again and again. There was tenacity. He held on. He refused to let go. He would not give up. And it takes faith to be tenacious. It does. Think about it. To have tenacity. Because it can be hard to see your, your, your prayers as productive when you're not seeing an instant response. And so often we lack tenacity. We give up. We pray and we wait and nothing happens and we're done waiting then. It's been wisely said that God's delays are not the delays of inactivity. They're delays of preparation. It takes faith to be tenacious, to hold on and not let go, to hold on and not give up. Your Bible says that God is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Don't give up. Cry out with tenacity. Uh, Bartimaeus, like Jesus, he would make his request for mercy more than one time. But in Jesus' story at the end of the gospel, he would not receive the answer in the way or in the time that he had hoped. As he would be in the garden asking for mercy if there's any other way. And you might find yourself today in good company with Bartimaeus and Jesus crying out for mercy more than once waiting for heaven's answer. Cry out with humility, with tenacity. Cry out with a third thing, with expectancy. I love this about his story, that he cries out in faith towards Jesus with a sense of expectancy. In verse 50, it says he throws aside his garments. I love this detail. It's a cloak that would have been used as a, a coat in the winter or a blanket at night on the streets. But there in that region of the world, it's rarely that cold as he's out in the Judean wilderness, almost closer to the Dead Sea, that, that crazy hot valley, than he even is in proximity towards Jerusalem, the city itself, oftentimes that cloak would be laid out in front of a beggar, historians tell us, basically like a beggar's cup where you would throw alms, you'd throw money onto that cloak. Some commentators say it's more than just that, that it was actually a cloak that was issued by Rome to the poor. It was their way of validating people who actually needed help so that we didn't have to be leery of, do they really need help or do they go from here and get in a sports car and drive to a fancy house where there's something that apparently has lived in the hearts of humanity uh, for as long as humanity's been around so that the government stepped in and said, no, this guy will not make it if you do not help. This was his meal ticket. This was his lifeline. And he took it and threw it aside. No doubt, in that moment, someone who had eyes to see would have reached over and grabbed it. This very well may have been the only item, the sole possession, the only thing he owned, the only thing that was his. And when he threw it aside, it's a statement to us that he was confident that he'd never need it again. I'm no longer going to need this. My life is going to change in this moment. My identity will be different. I'm not the beggar any longer who needs a handout. I'm not the blind man who can't see. What I'm telling you is that he expected Jesus to heal him. He expected Jesus to hear and to respond. He expected his prayer to move on the heart of God and, and then because of that to initiate action from the very hand of God. Do I, do I expect him to heal, to move? to speak, to change. 
to restore, to set free, to forgive, to empower, to be faithful. Do you expect the Father to hear your prayer and the Son to stand still for you? To give you his attention? Or or are we more surprised when he responds than when he seemingly does not? Because this man cried out to Jesus with a sense of expectancy where he threw aside his lifeline. You know, Scripture gives us a glimpse into the heavenly realm so that we get to see what happens when we pray. When we pray, we think sometimes that, that, that the sound of my voice is hitting off the ceiling and doesn't go much further, but your Bible tells you that something massive takes place that's so different from that. That God hears our prayers and then dispatches a response, often in the form of spiritual entities and beings. It's Acts chapter 12, a great one if you're in a home group, maybe to look at this week. Where Peter's in prison, presumably on death row. John the Baptist had just been beheaded. And the church begins to pray, please, we can't bear another loss. And when they prayed, an angel arrived at Peter's cell, woke him up, removed his chains, and led him to freedom. And although it's been wisely said that an angel fetched Peter, a prayer fetched the angel. Listen, my prayer is uttered. It's heard then in the throne room of God and God dispatches a response. It's Daniel chapter nine where Daniel's overwhelmed and he cries out and says, what am I to think or do? And God answers his prayer and sends a messenger angel that comes and ministers to his heart to give him understanding. It's Hezekiah in the book of Isaiah, I think it's chapter 38, where he's crying out where Sennacherib and the Assyrians have come and and they're giving their threats and we're going to come and kill you. And he lays out their threatening letter before the presence of the Lord and says, this is your people, this is your fight, you have to do something. And God dispatched a military angel to come and protect his people. It's Jesus during his time in the wilderness of temptation where Jesus is again and again combating the enemy's attack with what he believes and trusts about what God has said. And in that moment, it says that ministering angels arrive to give Jesus strength. When we pray, something happens. The Father hears and responds. He moves the heart of God and and it causes the hand of God to jump into action. Listen, my prayers are not simply for the purpose of simply informing God of what's going on in my life or situation. He's God. He knows my needs before I even ask him. But my prayers, what they do is they open the door. They don't twist God's arm. No, they open the door for God to come in and do things he's maybe even been desiring to do, but wouldn't do before in violation of my free will. If that's true, then invite your heavenly father into open the door. You're not twisting his arm. Open the door and invite him into your fears. Invite him into your dreams. Invite him into your aspirations, your family, your workplace, your worries. Oh, cry out like Bartimaeus did. Yes, with humility. Yes, with tenacity, with expectancy. But I love this other piece of this. The fourth thing is that he cried out with specificity. And don't laugh, it's a real word, with specificity. He was specific. When Bartimaeus gets the attention of Jesus, Jesus asked him a rather interesting question. He looks at him and says, what do you want me to do for you? It's actually something we've seen Jesus ask before. You remember right before this, the story before this, he asked James and John, what do you want me to do for you? And their answer was, we want, in a sense, what we've deserved and earned. We want to be on either side of your throne when you come into glory. 
It's funny, there's another James who will later write an epistle that says, we have not because we ask not or because we ask amiss, trying to fulfill the desires of our own flesh and pleasure. But here in this moment, there's no request of what I deserve. Instead, it's a request for mercy. But Jesus asks him, what do you want me to do? And makes it so that Bartimaeus has to be specific. Jesus in the Gospels, there's recorded 173 different questions that Jesus will ask. And you would be hard-pressed to convince me that Jesus asked those questions because he just didn't know, because he didn't have the information he needed, especially in a moment like this. Think about this. With this question, there's a stumbling blind guy before Jesus who's being led by the hand, who's probably standing before Jesus, and they're like, you're here, you're before Jesus of Nazareth. He's probably reaching out in front of him to reach out and touch Jesus. And while that scene is playing out, Jesus stands there and says, what would you like me to do for you? I think in most cases, the reason that Jesus asks questions is because he's using it as a teaching tool or to draw faith out of people. A teaching tool, like remember the moment where they come and they say, Jesus, you and your disciples, you're breaking the Sabbath by doing these things, by healing someone. And he says, well, which of you had, if you had livestock, if one fell in a pit, would you not go get it? If your own child fell in a pit, would you not rescue them? He's saying, wouldn't you do the good thing you knew to do and have the power to do, even if it's on the Sabbath, because you don't want to withhold the love of God for someone in order to honor God by not doing anything? It makes no sense. It was a teaching tool, his question was. But in a moment like this, and in many others, Jesus would ask questions to draw faith out of people. He looks at his friends and say, who do men say that I am? And then he says, but who do you say? In John 5, he comes to the pools of Bethesda, and he looks at the layman, and he says, what would you like me to do? Would you like to be made well? And now with Bartimaeus, what would you like me to do? If I'm Bartimaeus, I can't help but wonder if if I'd be a little frustrated or even offended. If I'd be fighting an urge to snap back in anger or sarcasm, like, like, what do you mean, Jesus? Look at me. Are you making light of this in front of all of these people? There's a crowd here. They've told me to shut up because I'm a nuisance. Now I'm standing in front of you, stumbling here, and you're saying, what do you want me to do? Are you the blind one? How dare you? But it's not what we see. For Bartimaeus in this moment to publicly verbalize his request would take humility to publicly profess his need, to admit, I can't do this. Would you do it for me? It took boldness that he was willing to ask in front of all of these people, the Savior of the world, to to give his time and attention and, and a miracle to him. It took faith. He had to believe that Jesus was capable of healing him, and it took faith to believe that he was even willing to heal him. He had to have faith that was willing to step into the unknown as well because all he had known, it seems like for years, all he had is a routine for a portion of his life. Everything that was normal for him of receiving a handout and knowing he'd make it were things that he was willing to let go of. Everything he had grown accustomed to in that moment would be taken away if he threw aside his garment and said, Jesus, would you heal me? He's stepping into an unknown future. And as scary as life in the prison of darkness, of blindness would be, he's stepping into a new frontier that's completely unknown. But there's faith in that moment. Rabboni. It's not just rabbi or teacher. It's an affectionate word that commentators say, they they point out that it means my dear rabbi or my personal Lord, that I might regain my sight. Jesus in the moment, he wanted him to, to 
to have faith and, and publicly, specifically, confess his need. And when Bartimaeus verbalized his request, it was cultivating his own faith and at the same time was opening a door for God to come and do things that he wasn't doing before and stepping over his free will. And when God answered his request, God and God alone would receive the glory for the healing that took place there publicly. And I think, I think it's so important that we are specific in our prayers, not that we make our list of demands, but that we make sure that we don't just miss the answer to prayer and dismiss it as happenstance. Like, you know, I did get a new job offer, but that just happened because so-and-so was a friend of so-and-so and so-and-so. No, then pray specifically that God open a door this week so that when it happens, I look your direction. It's my wife and I driving home from our honeymoon. We had just landed. And as we're driving home, she says, you know, we, what we really need to do is we need to start talking about getting a mattress. And I'd been into a mattress store once before. I felt like I walked into a used car sales lot. I was overwhelmed and it's not a fun experience. That's why some of you are snickering. But she then says, well, we should pray because she could see I was overwhelmed and didn't want to spend the money. And so I let her pray because I was like, boy, pray, please. We parked the car as we're unloading our suitcase. I watched a guy come out of the apartment near us carrying what looked like a brand new mattress. And I went over to help him carry it to the dumpster. And when I asked him, what are you doing? He says, I just got orders from Camp Pendleton. I need to go overseas. I don't have time to put all my stuff in storage except for just a few things uh, to fit in some sort of a pod that's going to be shipped somewhere else. And so I don't have room for this mattress. It's basically brand new. It's been sitting in my guest room. It hasn't even been used, but I got to toss it. And instead, it's me walking with that guy's help to bring it in through our front door and for me to look at my wife, my bride of just a week, and say, look how good God is that he listens. Look how good God is that he cares. It was me being in a situation even before that as a single guy who just finished college wrecking someone else's car, which was a bummer, but needing to replace it and get something sorted out. And I I was $800 short of what I needed. And I remember praying and saying, God, I don't know how I'm going to come up with this kind of cash. And it was within days an unmarked note came with my name on it to the church I just started interning at that had eight $100 bills inside with just a note that was a verse from the Psalms about God's provision. No one knew that amount. I hadn't told a soul. It's a young man that went to a camp with us who was sharing with the group about his love for his sister who had left the house and basically was a prodigal living out on her own, rejecting God. And we prayed together that night with all these students. Then tonight, if that's true, wake her up while she's sleeping and Jesus, remind her of your love and that there's still a home to come home to. And the next day at lunch, my cell phone rang, and it was that boy's mom crying, saying, I need to talk to my son. And it was her calling, saying, you'll never believe this, but your sister said she woke up last night, and God convicted her. She wants to come home. It's Lindsay praying for over a year for us to get into a house with a yard, and and God answering that prayer. If we pray with specificity, it gives God opportunity to receive the glory that he's due, where so much of the time things work out, and we're like, well, I don't know, life, it's just sometimes things fall your way. But Jesus says, what is it that you want? How would we answer that question? Here's the last thing, and I'm done. And that's audacity. He cried out with humility. He cried out with tenacity, with expectancy, with specificity. He cried out with audacity. Dictionary.com defines it as boldness or daring, especially with confident disregard for personal safety, conventional thought, or other restrictions. It's Joshua standing up before all the people saying, make the sun stand still. It was not just an audacious claim, but it was audacious faith that stayed there and continued to fight, not knowing if it actually would. It's Bartimaeus not knowing what would happen, but knowing that I have nothing to offer, and yet I'm willing to cry out, just Jesus for mercy, and I'm going to refuse to stop. 
and I will throw away my only lifeline in order to stand before you. Audacious faith is our response to the love and the character of a gracious God. If we are the children of an almighty God, why would we not ask for and even expect the impossible? It's why Jesus said, when you pray, pray our Father who's, who's holy and, and who is in heaven. You're addressing a Father. Jesus comes along and, and breaks all of the norms and, and does something that was unthinkable in that he addresses God as a Father, but then he takes it a next step further and does the absolute unthinkable when he doesn't just invite you, but he instructs you to do the same. You're addressing a father, but he also says, whose name is holy, high above, categorically different, set apart. He's saying that he's so different from us. He's a father who's holy and in heaven. He's a father who's willing to meet your needs. He's a holy God who's able, capable of meeting your needs. That is where we address our prayers. My friends, we started our time by just saying, like, what am I worth? Do I matter? Do I have value or worth? There's intrinsic value, there's assigned. And you have both intrinsic and assigned value to God. It's what sets him and his love for you apart from all others. The love of a father for his children. Now don't misunderstand what I'm about to say, because I'll be in big trouble if you misunderstand it. Loving my wife is an ongoing decision and choice. Now, she makes that choice easy because she's lovable, she's lovely. But it's still a choice to choose to love. Man, when I became a dad for the first time, though, my understanding of love totally changed. Riley, the moment that she was born, in fact, the little video clip that we'll play in a moment, is her about a, an hour old. She looks like she's just gone 12 rounds in a heavyweight bout little Eskimo. There was no process involved, no discussion to be had. I loved her. Naturally, instinctively, without measure or reason, because she was mine, my daughter, my child. She had incredible intrinsic value to me. She didn't have to earn that kind of love. She will never have to earn that kind of love. I already love her. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called the children of God. That's the beauty of this. That there is, yes, assigned value at a cross. There is intrinsic value. You've been made in his image. Something is worth whatever a person will pay for it. We've seen that in the housing market. You think your house is worth a half million and someone pays 1.2. That's what it's worth. Maybe you've sold a family heirloom or maybe a car that's full of nostalgic memories where this was our family vehicle and there was joy and love and arguments that all took place inside of it. And someone offers you half of what you think it's worth. Well, that is the value of it, whatever someone will pay for it. When it comes to a person, what's a person worth? The blood of Christ. The only thing in the universe so much as we know that God cannot simply make more of, that was the value of human life, of humanity. You're worth what someone will pay, and we were not purchased with silver or gold or any other corruptible thing. We were purchased with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. 
My friends, the motivation of the gospel is not fear or shame. It's that we're loved. That's the foundation and the motivation of this message. And I would just encourage you today, have a confidence in the wonderful, profound love of God for you. And if you have that confidence, you get to approach him with humility. A humility that says, I can't, and I'm not even going to try to earn it or convince you. I just need your mercy, but I believe you have it for me. And yet with a sense of expectancy, believing in his heart, the goodness, the grace in his heart, his love for you in his heart, that he'll respond. Approach him even with the audacity that's willing to pray with some specificity, giving him the opportunity to show his power and his love and his glory all at once and receive the praise and credit for it. And be determined to approach him with tenacity that drives you to continue to go back to him time and time again, even when his response from heaven doesn't come the first time. That's what I'm telling you here is that as Jesus walked along the road, he began to hear that it was Jesus of Nazareth. And he began to cry out, Jesus, son of David, please have mercy on me. And they warned him, be quiet. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy. And Jesus stood still. Father, thank you that this is not just a story we read of someone else but that we find our own story here. That Jesus, we approach you believing that heaven stands still for us. Jesus, thank you that that you came and you demonstrated the kind of love you had for us. We want to live in confidence, not in our own ability, not not in, in our own qualifications, We want to come in a confidence that we have a God who loves us and who stands by us. We want to come confident in you and your love and commitment to us. And we want to come like this man came, empty-handed, saying, God, I'm not even going to try to earn it. I'm just going to receive what you freely give, Jesus. Jesus, you are the greatest gift we've been given. Jesus, we've never earned you and you've never asked us to. You've loved us. But we respond, Jesus, to that kind of love by loving you in return. Jesus, stand still for us, for us to be with you, to sit with you, to hear from you. Jesus, thank you that you entered this world to stand still, to hang there on a cross. God of all creation, coming to do that for us. What a beautiful gift and display of love unlike the world has ever or will ever see again. Jesus, we look that direction towards a cross. So quiet hearts, still anxieties, remove our fears, place peace and joy and hope in our hearts. Jesus, because you are a good God who does love us. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you again for listening to the Olive Branch Christian Fellowship Podcast. For more information about our church, go to olivebranchcf.org.